welcome to another episode of The Breakdown. It's gonna be a little different. It's gonna be a little, uh, a little bit more unique. Longtime friend of the show and probably one of the most thoughtful and kind persons I've ever had the privilege to, to virtually meet. Don Slater reached out a little while ago and he proposed an idea for maybe how we could turn things on, 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 a, on the bit of the head for a little bit. And uh, so today we're going to do something very differently. Today I'm I'm not I'm going to be doing a lot of talking, but I'm not going to be doing any questions because Don proposed the idea. What would happen if uh, if somebody interviewed me? And I said that that sounds like it should be very very interesting. So at this point, I'm turning the host duties over to the breakdown, over to Don Slater. So Don, it's all it's all yours. You're in charge, man. Welcome to the breakdown with Don Slater as host today. <laughs> And today we have a guest, Nate Pike, who's a, a, a fabulous advocate for uh, Alberta. He uh, raises many uh, issues in an informed manner and brings on some very good guests. So he's performing a great service for the province. And uh, I think, well, I'm going to take off my hat because it throws the focus of my camera out. But uh, Nate performs great service for Alberta because he tries to... Uh, provide information to all Albertans concerning Alberta. Now, Nate, I, I, first question I have to ask you is, uh, you ran for a political party. What was your motivation in doing so? Um, well, first of all, very well done throwing me off uh, balance with all of the kind words, because I wasn't prepared for that. Um, but to try to answer your question, um, I mean, I think the first answer has to be a little bit of hubris, um, simply because I don't think that anybody runs for political office without having a little bit of hubris. But the biggest motivation in, in 2019, I did run uh, as the Alberta Party candidate for Calgary Northeast and got a got a good education in a number of ways coming out of it. The biggest motivation for me running, though, was I was watching the political landscape in Alberta. And I saw where uh, Mr. Kenny was likely going to be taking places. He had a willingness to flirt with the more radical elements of conservatism. Um, and that historically never goes anywhere great. Um, so watching that unfold uh, and watching what was happening to the, the brand of conservatism, I, I've never been a social conservative by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I was raised in a very political family. Uh, my grandfathers on both sides were very, very politically active. My grandfather on my dad's side was uh, a founding member of the, the Reform Party. He was heavily involved with that. He was heavily involved in the, the Canadian Alliance. There were more than a few extremely heated uh, debates over the the dinner table because you know I, I'm I'm the the progressive punk rocker guy and he was the 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 conservative but his brand of conservatism was always it had some dignity to it is how I would like to say it not to say that the parties that he helped form always maintained that dignity but he had some dignity to his brand as conservatism. And my grandfather on my mom's side, I would have to say the same thing. He was, he was not super uh, socially conservative, but he had a dignity to his conservatism. And watching 
not just the direction where Mr. Kenny was taking the, the party and inevitably the province, but also the direction that he was taking conservatism. It was very much one of those things where, well, I can either get in the ring um, and try to do something about this, or I can sit on the sidelines and go, this isn't who I am. And so I decided to, to try to do my best to get in the ring. Um, oh, thank you. That's that my answer. answer. Yeah, so would you say that your grandparents, <clears throat> while staunchly conservatives, were very moral and ethical? Yeah, for sure. Um, my, my, my grandfather on my mom's side was uh, a journalist for years and years and years. He was actually the editor of a, a small town newspaper that I'll leave unnamed as to not bring embarrassment to the family name with my shenanigans. Um, but uh, he was he was a very he was also the mayor of that town for years and years and years. And he was a very dignified but compassionate, very reserved, but very dignified but compassionate individual. Um, my grandfather on my dad's side, oil and gas through and through. But again, um, especially later on in life, he, he really got to a place where kindness became a much more important factor for him. Um, and, and watching his, his arc uh, as he went from the, the grandfather that I knew as a very, very small child who was you know, the prototypical oil and gas man of the 70s uh, to where he ended up and where he balanced his politics was was really quite a fascinating uh, journey to watch unfold. But the, yeah, I would say uh, overwhelmingly, it was not always perfectly executed. It never is for anybody. But I think that there was a great deal of of kindness and aspiration that existed in both of them. I think uh, old style politics was the engine of each party was uh, to bring you to the destination of a good outcome for the public. Uh, you were concerned about the welfare of your fellow human being. Uh, I'm, I've, I ran for the Liberal Party, which is very different than the party you ran for. But you and I sometimes see very much eye to eye. Do you think that's based on our moral character? Our, and our ethics. I would have to assume so. I mean, I, I would also argue that when you take a look at the the, the provincial parties, uh, the the Liberal Party and the Alberta Party were are not that far apart from each other. I know there's been multiple efforts to try to get the parties to to merge in order to try to turn them into something other than the fourth and fifth place fundraisers uh, or sixth place fundraisers. Um, th those efforts haven't been successful, but while the fiscal policy of the, the two parties has some differences, I think that the, the social policy of the two parties is, is very, very similar. I think fiscal policy is one of the areas where you have a lot of opportunity to split some hairs. Everybody wants to see well, I shouldn't say that. I think most people want to see, you know, taxpayers' money invested at the best possible return for investment. Um, I think that where the similarities align between parties like the Alberta Party, the Liberal Party, the Green Party, uh, to be clear, I'm not a member of any parties anymore. Um, but I think the similarities align very heavily on sort of the, the socially progressive values. Uh, and I think those socially progressive values come out of a recognition that, you know, 
A, not only can we do better by a lot of people, but more importantly, we should. Yeah, yeah. Um, trying to compose my next question based on everything you just said there. I didn't. I, I, I did know that uh, the Alberta Party had a lot of good individuals, uh, a lot of informed people, uh, not ideological at all, just uh, more concerned for the welfare of the community, and. I guess small, small, small party politics allows for that to happen. Now, if you were to look at the UCP today, what would you say the weaknesses and flaws are in that party? Or do you even want to answer that question? You can always say pass, Nate, if, if the question- No, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I, I, I'm gonna do my best to not pass on, on any of the questions today. Cause I, th I think that that's kind of a, I mean, if it's like an empirical question that I like, if you ask me for the sixty-seventh digit of pi, I'll be like, oh, I can take, I can take a pass on that one. But, but if it's if it's a matter of of, of opinion, I don't, I don't, I don't have anything to hide on those. I think that the UCP has a lot of problems. I think that they, you know, one of the the byproducts of the UCP being a thing is it was a very deliberate attempt to merge the progressive conservative elements of conservatism in Alberta with the let's go with not so progressive conservative elements of conservatism in Alberta. And I think that one of the, the byproducts of that is it starts to be a conversation about culture. And what is the culture? What is the internal culture of the UCP? And I think we're seeing, especially since Daniel Smith came to the, the front, I think we're seeing a bit of a civil war in, inside of the UCP. I think Jason Kenney and anybody who's been paying attention to the show for any length of time knows that I got some beef there. But I think that Jason Kenney's, one of his overriding goals, one of his awarenesses was that in order for the UCP to remain a viable political uh, apparatus, it needed to have that constant work towards balancing the progressive element of the party, progressive conservative element of the party with the, the wild rose element of the party. And I think one of the things that we're seeing the UCP try to figure out right now, and I don't know how successfully they're doing it, is Danielle Smith is wild rose. Danielle Smith is a libertarian. That's how she sets the, the dial for the culture of that party. And I think that there are a lot of progressive conservatives who are looking at that going, oh, I don't know about this. I think we saw that play out during the election where we saw multiple heavy hitters from the progressive conservative uh, and the federal conservative pre-Polyev era uh, come forward and say, oh, this is not that. Like, this is not something that I'm, I can affiliate myself with, as, as Thomas Lukasik said, lend your vote to the, the NDP. Um, so I think that there is the biggest weakness of the UCP right now is nobody really knows where they sit. And I think that their leader only complicates that issue, that issue further because, I mean, ask Danielle Smith a question, you'll get an answer. Ask her the same question five minutes later. It's 50-50. You'll probably get a different answer. And then if you wait another 10 minutes, the odds go up to like 75-20, you'll get a different answer. Give it a couple of days, and it's 100% you're going to get a different answer. So there's not a clear 
compass. There's not a North Star for for that party right now. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing people like David Parker come in and successfully start to take over the internal culture of that party. So they got to figure out who they are and and what their boundaries are. And if they don't, I think that's definitely their biggest weakness. Uh, you know, there's a saying for the people, by the people, borrowing from the U.S. Constitution. It seems that libertarianism is anti-government. So if you've got a, a government that's against government, I'm just wondering how they can possibly serve the people. Uh, what's your opinion of libertarianism on the whole? Can you think of any place libertarianism has ever served the public well? I think that libertarianism is a great brand. I don't think that it's actually a, like if you wanna take a look at, on the political spectrum, what aligns with libertarianism? What's the next closest thing that we could put beside libertarianism? And it starts with an A and ends with narky. Um, the, the reality is, is that when you, when you go with, I don't wanna have rules, you're literally talking about anarchy. I think the problem is that there is this brand of freedom that has infiltrated American culture for sure, and I think it's working on infiltrating Canadian culture, and it is not representative, representative of what freedom actually is. I think that when we're talking about freedom, we have to recognize that freedom is not this universal concept where I get to do whatever I want to and not experience any consequences. That's, that's not what freedom is. Um, I think that freedom is something that has to be maintained. I think it's something that has to be nurtured. I think it's extraordinarily fragile. But the brand of freedom that we've seen bubble up out of the states and start to spatter on Canada is this notion that I should be able to do whatever the fuck I want and you can't stop me because that's not freedom. And that's not freedom. Uh, and I think that one of the things that's fascinating about uh, the current leadership of the UCP is Danielle Smith brands herself as a libertarian. She brands herself as somebody who's pro-freedom. But when you take a look at what her actual policies are and what the sources of those policies are, she's corporate. Mm. Oh, like, indeed. That's, indeed. That's the ball game. And so I don't think, like when we talk about corporations going, we're a corporation and we want a libertarian environment, well, you're for sure not for the people anymore because you're answering to your, your board of directors, you're answering to your shareholders, you're answering to your, your profit margins. So it's not about freedom for the sake of being free. And I think that one of the big dangers of, of Ms. Smith is that she puts out this idea of you know, freedom, libertarianism, we should be able to do whatever we want. But it's only her friends and the people who stand to benefit that should be able to do those things. And that's contradictory to the, the ideology that she pretends, I'm going to say, to have. Um, I mean, one of the, the big things that I found wildly entertaining over the last year was, you know, Smith talked about the importance of freedom of speech. Smith talked about the importance of uh, freedom and liberty and, 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 and. Um, and she said that the only reason why she would ever block anyone on any of her social media platforms if they, was if they used very specific words. And we saw almost 4,000 Albertans get blocked 
not for using those words, but because they dared to question her policies and her positions. They dared to ask questions. And if your freedom is so fragile that it can't withstand any kind of scrutiny, it's not freedom. Well, it seems that they're seeking a freedom without personal responsibility. Freedom yeah, from exactly. order. Yeah, yeah. Order was one of the biggest things that conservatives, conservative philosophers espoused, the importance of order you know, in society. And that's why we have laws. It seems that libertarian, libertarianism to me is like trying to force us back to the laws of nature and completely abandoning the social contract, like the responsibility the wealthy have for the vulnerable. Like uh, there's, this, there's this desire to live in the wild again. Like I can do whatever I want, like the animal that, that hunts, but there's, there's no recognition that uh, yes, the, the weak are, are the vulnerable in nature and they're, they're killed and eaten, right? But the fat and slow, are also the targets of wildlife. So if you're if you have too much or too little, you're a target. And this is what the social contract was meant to rectify. It was like you can live in avarice, you can have as much as you want, laws will protect you and your property, but you must care for the vulnerable. And it seems that the wealth wealth of today and the corporations of today have completely abandoned the responsibility of taking care of the vulnerable. And we're seeing that society start to erode from the roots up towards the top. Um, what is your opinion of what started this? Do you think it was like Citizens United that really started the ball rolling when, when uh, citizens were, when corporations were given the freedom to really start to heavily influence the public? Or do you think it started back like with Milton Friedman and Reagan and changing conservatism from this responsible, compassionate form of government that uh, was striving to uh, create the best society in the most efficient way possible, economically efficient? Or do you think it was just sheer greed, uh, the transport of money from government through the hands of the middle class to the rich? I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. One thing I want to say about the social contract thing before I try to answer that question, though, is I think that one of the missing components uh, that we see in how current, air quotes, libertarian, let's just call them Daniel Smith conservatives, because I think that'll probably capture the most of them. Um, you know, there's, there's the element of social contract that says if you're going to be a member of society that you have to be willing to follow the rules of that society. And that extends to following the mechanisms that exist to change those rules when those rules needs to change and grow. And I think one of the things that we've seen in regards to people like Smith and the abdication from social contract that they've chosen to pursue is rather than change those rules through the established mechanisms, they're just going to go right to the heart of power and they're just going to change the rules the way that they want to change the rules, social contract be damned. We saw that with her attempted interference in Crown prosecutions. Um, so that I think is one of the big areas is there's this, this notion of, well, I guess we have to follow the rules, but if we don't like the rules, then we'll just you know cut all the throats that we need to in order to get them changed. And there are actually rules, there are mechanisms for how rules have to be changed in any, functioning society. So I wanted to get that out of the way. But to get your question, I think that we're seeing just another example of, of the pendulum swing. I mean, it's important to remember Abraham Lincoln was a Republican. 
You know, when we when when we talk about the the shifts that occur within politics and within society, the Republican Party nowadays is one of the most repressive, socially conservative, regressive institutions that exist in the United States. And that's the same party that freed the slaves largely because of Lincoln, although that gets to be a really historically complex thing as well. Um, so I think that it's freeing the freeing the slaves was okay, but giving them the right to vote that really flipped the party on its head. It took all the Dixiecrats <laughs> and forced them north. But yeah, it's an example of how things change for sure. Yeah, yeah, and so I think that you know when we're talking about why we see the shifts that we do, I think it has to do with the strength of character of the people who are are in in leadership roles. I think that there are always going to be competing uh, parts of, of humanity, competing parts of society. I think that most, most people who are in society, their primary interest is self-interest. And I think that that's largely understandable. The question for leaders is how do you um, transmute that self-interest into the betterment of society and interest for all of society. And that's where real leadership steps up to the plate. I think that what can happen though very easily is you can have people who fail that leadership test. And I'd, I'd argue that the last 20-ish years, 25 years of Al Alberta leadership is an example of failed in most ways leadership. There was a failure to be able to convert that self-interest into societal self-interest. Um, and so I think that, that when, when that, that leadership vacuum exists, when, there are, when there's not uh, leadership in place that's able to, to work that sort of societal alchemy, uh, inevitably you're going to have people who are predominantly interested in their self-interest step up to the plate. And I think that's where we see the Daniel Smiths. I think that's where we see the, the Jason Kennys. I think that's where we see a lot of the political leaders of the last 25 years. These are people who are not pursuing the role because they believe that they can work that societal alchemy into, we're gonna make this better for everybody. They're pursuing the role because they're, they've been sent uh, by particular interests to go and squeeze the most amount of money out of the thing. And I think that if we have parties and we have institutions that don't make protecting society their number one priority, like I don't understand how there's any political party where that isn't like item fucking one, pardon my language, but I'm the guest so I get to swear. Um, <laughs> I don't understand how there's any political party where that isn't the number one thing on their charter, that isn't the number one thing on their constitution. Um, well, you said, trans, you said transmute, and I think uh, politics is uh, not uh, transmuting the public for the better. They, they use tactics like behavioral, behavioral immunity to make the public angry. And the empathy each individual has is then turned inward because they feel under attack all the time and they feel afraid. And instead of uh, you know breathing in all the pain of the world and breathing out joy it's the opposite you know they just like 
they're always disentitling the vulnerable. Well, they're, they're lazy. They don't really want to work and it's their fault for being that way. So we don't have to care about them. They're relieving people of their moral responsibility while making them very angry at the same time. Now we, we have this problem with UCP, but do you think because they are so uh, polarized and, and doing the wrong things for the public, that the NDP has become the polar opposite and in a way is not serving the public either because they've been sort of pushed into this monster dealing with this other monster. It's not like uh, Jekyll and Hyde, it's like Hyde and Hyde. Do you think the NDP is much better than the UCP? What do you identify as the issues in the NDP? Like why did they lose the election to a party that is in such uh, a disarray and it has so many problems. Is the public so painfully unaware of reality that the NDP would lose? Or is it the NDP's fault that they lost? Uh, yes. <laughs> okay, that's a good answer. All right. So, I'll, I'll, I'll expand on that because I'd never let a guest get away with that. Um, I think there's a couple, I mean, if you want to talk about why did the NDP lose the election, the NDP lost the election because they introduced the corporate tax increase, period. Okay. Yeah. I, I especially in a city like Calgary, the, it's literally three thousand votes in the neighborhood of three thousand votes that would have determined uh, whether or not the NDP formed government or the UCP formed government. And when the NDP came out with the corporate tax increase in the middle of an election, that was one of the biggest strategic and tactical errors that I think I've seen in a political party in quite some time because. If, if you don't think, and I, I've, I've said this before, if you don't think that that, that tax increase chased away 3,000 voters, then you don't know Calgary. Um, it, absolutely, it absolutely did. So that's why they lost the election. Now, the better question, I think, is why did they bring that piece in? And why did they run their campaign the way that they did? And I think you're not wrong. I think that there is a significant part of the NDP that has been sucked into the, the paradigm of it's much easier to make people afraid than it is to inspire them. I think that once you have people inspired, that's way more powerful than, than fear. But the, the spend of political capital and the requirement of character and the requirement of leadership that's needed to inspire people, the, the will and the, the, the strength, I'll use it again, the strength of character to be like, no, we're not going to get rolling around in the mud with this. Um, it's, it's, it's extraordinarily hard to resist. Um, you have to be able to. Yeah. Sorry, I don't mean to yeah. interrupt. That was a super duper blunder. You know, let's a few days before the election announce a huge tax increase. You know, I just do not understand who would have done that, and who would have advised it, who signed off on it. Well, I think what they were trying to do is they were trying to, I mean, the, the only argument that I've been able to come up with for it is the UCP represents the, the corporate elite class of Albertans. And so if you're going to try to, to pick a fight with Danielle Smith, if you're going to try to pick a fight with the, the corporate class, then launching a corporate tax hike is a great way to say to the, everybody who's not in that top 5% of Albertans, hey, look, we're gonna come for them too. But the problem is it, it, 
was so poorly communicated and so poorly framed that the UCP was able to jump on that and go, see the NDP, they're not even in office and they're already wanting to raise taxes. This is gonna chase away business and rana, 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 rana. And they were able to turn it into a source of fear incredibly quickly. Um, and I think that's a big part of, again, the, I think the NDP leaned into the divisive politics as opposed to the inspirational politics and it cost them. Do you think the NDP can ever recover from something like Bill 6? <sighs> yes, but it's going to require some, some honesty and some work. Do they need new leadership? Like having somebody not at Stelmack, but like at Stelmack in charge of the NDP? Well, this is where I think the NDP is going to be really interesting to watch over the next couple of years as well, because the... The problem that the NDP has is prior to Notley, they weren't able to communicate their brand very effectively. And when you take a look at the history of the NDP, uh, it's, it's, it's a prairie party and it's a rural party. And so if anybody's going to be the, the, the natural claimant to votes, from rural Alberta, one would think the rural prairie party should be a fairly easy shoe-in. But when Notley came in, they moved the brand away from that, even farther than where it was, and it wasn't particularly close to that because they were trying to get more metropolitan and, metropolitan and everything. But they made the brand Notley. And so I think one of the big challenges that the NDP is going to have I don't think there's any question that there's going to be a, a, a leadership race within the NDP probably in the next year. What is the NDP going to look like after that? Are they going to still be the, the super progressive party? Are they going to be the party that is, leans heavily into the, the social progressivism? Or are they going to you know, try to continue that hard run for the center um, abandon their roots and, and do it that way. I, th I think when it comes to rural Alberta, the NDP has opportunity. I think that they can distance themselves from Bill 6, but they have to start showing rural Alberta that rural Alberta matters to them. They didn't show up for rural Alberta hardly in the last election. And when it's not an election, they don't show up at all. Like, why am I seeing... Yeah. So anyways, they're sort of like the Republicans, you know, of mm -hmm. Lincoln. They used to represent a certain demographic and now they represent the complete opposite. So who in the NDP would you like to see step up if not Otley? Is there a favorite that, or do you like somebody from outside the party? Like, can you see Nate, Nate Pike leading the NDP? Oh God, no. Uh <laughs> I mean, this is where the this is where I think that the NDP have a real problem um, because it's been defined as a cult of personality for the better part of a decade. Around, you know, I'm with Rachel, um, and I. One of the big problems that they have is because the biggest and only personality that they've allowed to occupy the, the spotlight is Rachel, they haven't done a very good job of sort of cultivating the personalities of, of the other 
heavy hitters in, in the party. I mean, I take a look at someone, and I know that I've said this before, but I take a look at someone like Janice Irwin, who I think is an inspirational figure. I think that she has uh, a very effective social media presence, and they, they sidelined her uh, as soon as the election came around. She's one of their most positive and inspirational figures. And they were like, hey, how about you go door knocking and, and don't say anything and, and don't come to any press conferences and we're gonna, you just, just shh, shh, Janice, shh. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think that that was because Janice has had the potential to in some ways overshadow Notley because Janice is exceptionally good at, at being sincere. Um, do I think that she would be able to carry the leadership in an internal leadership race? I wish I could say yes, but I don't. Um, it seemed to uh, me that they sidelined uh, Janice because of the demographic that she represents. Yeah, I would agree with that 100%. Um, and it's that same demographic. Because that demographic is smaller, um, I don't think she'd be able to carry a leadership race. So now that leaves us, okay, well, who are the, the remaining heavy hitters? Shannon Phillips? Yeah. Eh, maybe. Um, but again, not much of a defined personality. Um, you know, the, the, I've, I've been having this thought experiment with a friend of mine where we've been going, okay, so who is it? Who, who, who's it going to be? And the challenge is if it's somebody outside of the party, I mean, Daniel Smith made it clear she wasn't going to hold by-elections when her candidates stepped down, when Schweitzer stepped down. She was like, no, we're not going to do a by-election there. We'll, we'll do one in Medicine Hat where I can win. Um, so I don't see a by-election opening up for somebody who is external to the party, who's external to the legislature. And that's a death knell for the NDP, because if their leader is sitting up in the gallery, if their leader is not the person who's holding Danielle Smith uh, and Mike Ellis to task, they're toast. So it's gotta be somebody internal to the party, but who's going to be internal to the party that can preserve Fortress Edmonton and bring in Calgary? Yeah, yeah. Well, you were talking about inspirational figures. Uh, before and Janice Irwin is definitely an inspirational figure. She speaks in manners that are more positive, uh, kinder. Uh, do you think Rachel is a victim to her strategy team that's in the NDP? I often think that the strategy teams in both parties could be interchangeable. They're made of the exact same sort of people, just win at all costs and uh, sometimes play dirty. Don't don't play by the rules. Uh, I think the NDP has let itself down by not obeying its own constitution in a number of cases. Uh, we've heard about the NDP bullying. Do you think that's just an exaggerated thing or do you think it ex exists in both parties equally? I would argue that when it comes to bullying the N between the UCP and the NDP, the NDP is probably worse. Um, and I say that because... In most cases, like let's take a look at the last election. The, the UCP had one candidate step down because they were on video saying absolutely insane uh, 
things and making absolutely ridiculous accusations towards teachers and the educational system. Like that was, you could watch the video of the person saying those things. But I think it's important to note that even there, allegedly the person didn't get kicked, they got, they resigned. Now you compare that to, you know, there's a candidate in Calgary who said some things about the the Stampede board and the group and the the, the group that's often referred to as this, the Stampede Mafia, the Calgary Mafia. Um, and within 24 hours, she was booted. So I think that the, the UCP is able to weather and is more willing to, to weather problematic candidates or challenging candidates or, or people who perhaps challenge the, the, the status quo a little bit. Whereas the NDP is so brand conscious that they will not tolerate any dissent uh, at the higher levels whatsoever. And I honestly think like it's, here's the thing, Rachel Notley is the one who stood up and said, we're gonna do this corporate tax. So whether or not it was her policy idea, whether or not it was her strategy, she's the leader of the party. And if she didn't have the, the, the wherewithal to go, oh, this might not play, um, I don't think I'm gonna do this. If she didn't have the ability to push back on her strategy team, you can say that like, that's a failure of leadership. That's, that it is. Um, and, and I like Rachel. I mean, I, I've, I've, I've said in the past, my, I have like extensive family history with her family. So it's, it, this isn't me saying, oh, that Rachel Notley is just the worst. It, that moment was a failure of leadership. And if that's reflective of the influence and power that a certain subset of people inside of the NDP have, okay. I mean, it's still a failure of leadership, but the, the bottom line is I think that in the NDP, you have Rachel Notley at the center. She's ultimately the one who's responsible for all of the things. I think there is a core group that is so ideologically driven um, that they view their job as to put up a, a, a force field around Rachel Notley to make sure that nothing that's going to distract her, nothing that's bad is going to, to get at her. And I think that that lends itself to them making decisions that they probably shouldn't be making. And I think that because they are so passionate in protecting the party, protecting the leader, that they will bring the knives out on people who um, don't deserve to have the knives brought out on them. And I think that that culture permeates outward. I mean, I, I think there's a little, I think it comes from a little bit of moral vanity too thinking mm -hmm. that your opinion is absolutely correct opinion. And the problem with the NDP that I see, and I could be wrong, you're more informed than I am, is that you've got a group of the same people making up the core of the NDP. And we often hear that the wisdom of the crowd is a very effective way uh, for parties to make decisions, to get a variety of opinions. But the NDP has the same group of people and they always come up with the same opinion. So doesn't really appeal well and doesn't really play well. And perhaps if Rachel had surrounded herself with a little bit more diversity, somebody would have said, hey, this is a really bad idea. So the failure not, may not have been announcing that the failure might have been not allowing a diversity of voices around her. But I could be completely correct, incorrect. 
I would argue, though, like, here's the thing. We, we have a team here at The Breakdown. And if somebody came and said, hey, Nate, you know what would be great? We should, we should do an episode where we just, just absolutely crap on every other podcast that exists. We should have the list of the, of the top 10 worst podcasts. Um, the, I'll give you the list. Here's the list of the, the top 10 worst podcasts. Here's the list of why. Now, I, I'm the editor or whatever, executive producer or whatever. We have fake titles that we use. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, if I go, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to do that. That's on me. Yeah. That's absolutely 100% on me. Uh, not my idea. And I could try to be like, oh, it wasn't my idea as much as I want. But if I'm the person standing in front of the, the, the microphone or the camera and saying, oh, number 10 worst podcast is, that's on me. And, and Rachel Notley is the leader, is the leader of PNDP, has, has the, the ability, ability to say, to say I don't, I don't think, think this corporate, corporate tax, tax thing is a good, is a good idea. idea. I think it's going to drive away a lot of Calgary, Calgary voters. voters. I'm not going to do, do, do it. I'm just not. I'm just yeah. not. Yeah. She, she absolutely the buck, has... The buck does yeah. stop here. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Now, so, now there's, there's a third party we have to talk about in Alberta. The Alberta voters themselves. Yeah. What What is unique about Alberta and Alberta voters? Like, are they an educated society? Have they fallen victim to um, tactics like behavioral immunity? Are they angry? Have they programmed to be? Have they been programmed to be angry? Are they really aware of their their position in the world, or has corporate influence really really taken over? There's there's an old saying: a man won't believe any uh, fact if that fact goes against his income. And is Alberta? Just uh, have, has Alberta fallen uh, fallen for the corporate line hook, line hook and sinker? I I mean I, I'm tempted to say yes again, uh, but <laughs> I think that that I think it's more complicated than that. One of the things that I'm a big believer in is the idea that you can't look at any any group as a monolith, um, and so when we're talking about the Alberta voter. Um, I think that that we have to be very careful in understanding that there is no jello molds shaped Alberta voter. I think that there's there's different factors that influence things for sure. Um, I think that if there was one defining characteristic that I would apply towards the Alberta voter. Um, I think that it is a, a fascinating dichotomy between hyper-engaged and apathy. I think there are a lot of people who spend 360, well, I'd have to do the math, most, the better part of four years, <laughs> um, completely disengaged. Uh, I think that there's some people who view politics as a... occasional source of, of entertainment. Um, but I think that there's a, a great deal of lack of engagement. And I think that the lack of engagement drives a lack of understanding of a lot of the issues and the complexity of the issues. And so when you have somebody who's charismatic and, charismatic and shows up and says, ah, oh, it's really simple, guys. Here's what it is. Oh, it's not Trudeau, he's screwing us. Um, okay, 
sure. Why not? I don't know any better. Um, that makes it very easy to, to buy into. I mean, I take a look at how many people I had a conversation with somebody earlier this week where they were, they made a comment about how Trudeau's just the worst. And I said, okay, why, why is he the worst? And they were like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you clearly dislike Justin Trudeau. Is that correct? Oh, I hate him. Okay. Why? And they really struggled to come up with this because all of a sudden they realized like, oh, this isn't just a, we're not just going to hang out and bash Trudeau. We're actually going to have a conversation. Ah, shit. I better, better come up with something to say. And it couldn't just be the, the tropes. What has Trudeau done since being in government that you don't like? Now I got a list. There's a whole bunch of things I can list off about Trudeau's policies that I go, that's really problematic for me. And I feel like it maybe kind of lied to people a little bit there. Uh, but I, I, I spend an inordinate amount of time engaging in politics. Um, this person could not come up with a reason why they disliked Trudeau other than their significant other also disliked Trudeau and they trust their significant other, so there must be something. But if both of them are coming from the standpoint of, well, I know that my spouse doesn't like Trudeau and neither of them have any good reasons as to why, then we got a problem here. And I think that that's reflective of the, the environment in Alberta in a lot of ways. I mean, Alberta is a very, very busy province. And when we're talking about uh, a lot of the industry that exists in Alberta, we're talking, okay, let's, let's talk about the oil and gas folks for a while. These are, these are very hardworking people, um, especially when we're talking about the people who work in the field. These are very, very hardworking people. And to ask somebody who's working 18, 16 hour days, hey, you've just put in like backbreaking labor would you take an hour or two from your day and crack a book? Like, that's a lot to ask from a person. And I'm not, I'm not being uh, derisive. If, if you've been doing the things, sometimes you just want to throw the TV on, watch some, some TV or, or whatever the case may be. I think that we have a, an environment where life can be so busy, so always, that finding the time to be an engaged citizen has to be a conscious choice. And unfortunately, we're a very privileged province and we forget that all the time. And so when you have the, the luxury of being able to, you know, I go to work and then I take one of my kids to soccer and then I take my other kid to gymnastics and then we gotta get back home and I gotta do the getting them ready for bed and make sure they got lunches for tomorrow and then, oh yeah, there's this spouse of mine that wants to spend some time with me. When, when that's your universe, because you can, which is a privilege, but when that's your universe to go, all right, and now Daniel Smith's saying what about renewables and who's doing, Oh, I just can't deal with that right now. And I think that that's, that's the biggest factor that drives it. Like when I, I grew up in rural Alberta and you know, when you're, when you're talking about people who are doing farming and ranching, that's not a nine to five. Um, that's like a, a five to nine. Um, and there's not a whole lot of time to care about things that don't directly affect you. And so I think that part of the, the, the biggest 
problem that we have is that we have not had very many conversations about the importance of being an active citizen in a functional democracy. And it is just as important as anything else that you're going to do. In many cases, more important because turning your back to it, not paying attention to it, gives you a Danielle Smith. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I've always thought that emotional re reasoning leads to emotional contagion. And uh, the thing that defends you against emotional reasoning is the opportunity to read a book or become educated and enlightened on a subject. But I, I didn't think before that uh, people are so busy in this world that they don't have time to sort of work their brain out a little bit. They just, they're functioning to just keep going. Uh, to that topic, do you think that the, the world has become so pressure filled that people are so responsible for keeping their household maintained? that they don't have leisure time anymore, that uh, we could talk about the affordable housing issue right now and how we're in a crisis. The disabled community saw that coming years ago because uh, we're the canary in the coal mine. We're always hypervigilant. We're always watching for the next boot to fall on us. So now Alberta is gonna suffer through the affordable uh, housing issue. Uh, what do you think is the solution to uh, the overworking of your average adult and uh, affordable housing. Do you think affordable housing is the basis for a good society? Um, yeah. I mean, okay. That's good I, 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 I was sort of working through that question as I was asking it because, uh, you know, I look at affordable housing and it attracts citizens because they can live in a city like Edmonton and not be paying $3 million for a home, you know. Uh, it allows people to have children because they can afford children. It allows people to buy from the local businesses because they can afford to. But it seems today that everybody's just you've got two working parents that are just going, going, going. They're, they're putting the pedal to the metal all the time just to support their life as is. So do you think in a way uh, society has become too expensive? Do we have to oh, reduce sure. costs to make it? For sure it has. I mean, I think one of the problems that we have is we are in some later stages of capitalism. And one of the, the byproducts of that is the, the it's no longer just about I got to have the white picket fence like my neighbor. We're not just looking, you know, next door or across the street. We're now also looking um, at all of the things that we want to have. So I want to be able to, um, you know, if I want to have a vacation home on Hawaii, I should be able to have a vacation home on Hawaii because I heard about this other guy that has a vacation home on Hawaii and it's, it's, it's so unfair that I can't have my vacation home on Hawaii. So I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I can to put together enough money that I can get a vacation home on Hawaii because I'll go there for like a whole week a year. Um, and I think that part of that, you know, we, there is a, one of the questions that I've been asking myself is what would be the reaction of Albertans if we had housing caps? Like, what if we said, if you want to own property in Alberta, you have to live here? What would that do? I think 
on its face, a lot of people should be able to get behind it. But there's a lot of, like I take a look, my street in Calgary has, has evolved quite a bit, but up until just recently, at least half of the houses were houses that were rental properties that were owned by people who don't live in the province. This, yeah. So, you know, that it, when it's purely an investment opportunity and you can buy low, sell high, well, you can buy low, but you're selling high. And so that drives the, the market up. And, you know, we have, you know, one of the conversations that we had in the municipal election here in Calgary was around the whole question of urban sprawl. And are we building housing in an intelligent way to meet the demand? And the answer is no, because everybody wants to have their um, three-bedroom house for their 2.5 kids and 1.5 animals. Um, they don't want to have anything attached. They certainly don't want to live near any of those condos because that's where the poor people live. Um, so there's this whole nimbyism. And it was fascinating to watch the conversation unfold in the municipal election where people were like, no, I, I, I think that there should be high-density housing, just not near me. Um, and if everybody in the city says that, then the higher density housing goes nowhere. So there's this, this detachment from reality that the people who have the opportunity to push some kind of change are, again, more interested in their short-term self-interests than they are in their long-term societal interests. And unfortunately, the people who can't afford the down payments, the people who are having to pay ludicrous amounts for, for rent, um, they're not in a position where they can influence a tremendous amount of change because all of their bandwidth is occupied by uh, making sure they're able to meet ends meet. Like, I, I had... 15 years ago, maybe 16 years ago, I rented an apartment. It was a roomy apartment in downtown Calgary for 500 bucks a month. <laughs> I, was, I was only 15 years ago. That same apartment now will go for 15. Yeah. Well, companies like Blackstone certainly haven't made the situation any better. You know, when they can buy up $5 trillion worth of real estate. And uh, we're in a time where there's a, there's a real shortage of supply. And the government is looking at giving people more money. But that's not addressing the issue of supply. Giving them more money will just increase, you know, the rental rates. You know, like we're, we're talking about Bill C-22 now, where the disabled community is supposedly going to get more money from the federal government to lift them out of poverty. And I'm worried, well, what's that going to do to seniors when the disabled people have more money and there's a shortage of housing? Is it going to drive seniors out in the streets? So I'm not thinking in a NIMBY way. I'm thinking about my fellow citizen. And I'm thinking about my fellow citizen perhaps because I've been dragged through the coals myself. And I think empathy is crafted in fire. And I think those that have that NIMBY mindset aren't really thinking about their, their welfare in a society, they're thinking their welfare in their household. Because we've seen violence rise as inequality rises. Uh, Edmonton's experiencing a, a burst of violent crime lately. And I think that's really as a result of income inequality and desperation of some people. 
I've also talked to a person that builds housing and uh, they say a four-story apartment building is the most efficient uh, building to build because the costs are great for a one-story, the less for two-story, three-story, even less four-story is where the costs, you know, are the, are the minimum costs, right? So, you know, there are, there are solutions, but again, we've got a society that has a will to do things, but then that's the execution to actually get them done. And I think as a society, we have to be much more responsible for our fellow man. But again, I would make, go ahead. I would make the argument that at the end of the day, we are so screwing ourselves by focusing on the short term in so many different ways. Like people talk about, uh, you know, Alberta's reaction to climate change, the six month moratorium on, on uh, green energy production is, is to me a perfect example of the unwillingness to recognize the reality of our current situation. Like we live in an era where extreme weather events are becoming more and more frequently here and we're not vulnerable here. And the question that I, when it, when it comes to housing, the, the question that, that I have is, you know, we can, we can say we're gonna do whatever with, with, with border security and all of that bullshit, but when a billion people get displaced because the ocean levels go up two feet, you think they're going to give a rat's ass about the border security? And so to me, not having a glut of housing is setting ourselves up for real problems in the future because there is going to come a period in the not too distant future where first world countries like Canada are going to be, whether we want to or not, accepting a boatload of climate refugees. And if we don't have any place to put those people, if we don't have a, a stable environment to make sure that they're okay in, um, you think crime's bad now? <laughs> like, yeah, it's, 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 it's gonna happen. I mean, it's, it's inevitable. At this point, it is absolutely inevitable. And, you know, when I, when I, I look at, here's, here's the question that I would ask any, any Albertan. If you, if you lost your home for whatever reason, be it fire, be it floods, and you're, you know, you have a family, you got two, three kids, um, what wouldn't you do to, to secure the safety for your family? And if you don't think that people in all other parts of the world won't do the same thing, you're fooling yourself. And if people look at countries like Canada, we're sure the, 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 the coasts are going to have a, a challenging go, but there's all this room in the middle. If you don't think that people aren't going to be looking for that type of geography and going, that's where I'm getting to. Come hell or high water, that's where I'm getting to. You're fooling yourself. And the, the reality is, is that, you know, you take a look at somewhere like the United States and their border crisis. A lot of that is being driven because of climate. And if you think that Canada, with the largest, largely unpatrolled border in the world, 
is immune to waves of people who are just looking to get their families safe. If you think we're immune to that, you're fooling yourself. Yeah, these are these are issues that people won't think about, though. They're always looking at tomorrow, not next week, and perhaps too much today. Do you think that uh, corporations have to become more responsible if they're going to be our actual uh, puppet masters of our politicians? That it, that it falls to the corporations to be more responsible and look further into the future? Or are they going to be are they going to be restricted to quarter and quarter, quarter to quarter by the bean counters? I would argue that they are responsible for the things that they're supposed to be responsible for. I mean, we're talking about money-making ventures. That's so, are, are corporations being responsible money-makers? The question is, are they making money? If the answer to that question is yes, then they're being responsible for the things they're supposed to be responsible for. Um, you know, I, I, we did a bit on last week's episode where we, I guess two weeks episode now, by the time that this goes up, um, where we talked about the fact that if you want to know what Danielle Smith's policies are in government, all you have to do is take a look at what policies she lobbied for when she was a lobbyist, when she was lobbying for corporations. Um, so I, I don't think that, that you're, you're never going to convince a corporation, hey, you know what you should do? You should make less money and be okay with it. Like you're never going to convince any major corporation that's what you should do. And that's where the role of government gets to be so important. And that's where protecting the role of government from corporate influence becomes so important. Because if you don't have people in those positions who are going to say, hey, I totally get that your number one priority in life is to make as much money as you can. But as prime minister, premier, mayor, whatever, my number one responsibility is to the society that I've been elected to lead and represent. And so, you know what? If you don't make as much money because of my policies, I guess it kind of sucks to be you because I got to take care of my people. And if we don't have people who are in those positions, uh, who are willing to take that stand, then we're screwed. Uh, this is why I pointed to the Citizens United uh, ruling at the very beginning of our conversation as being so destructive because it gave mm -hmm. corporations the opportunity to put an unlimited amount of money into politics. And, and I, I feel it's really changed. Uh, we don't have the Tommy Douglases anymore. We don't have the Lester B. Pierce. We don't have the politician that stands up to the corporation and says, well, this is what's good for my people. And ultimately, what's good for the people is what's good for the corporation. The corporation has a tendency to overtill its soil. You know, it's not the responsible farmer that, you know, worries about his crops 10 years down the line. He wants to get as much out of the soil this year, uh, cost be damned, you know. So I think regulation really protects corporations from themselves, from their own avarice. And, and, and in doing so, it protects the public at large. But that's just my humble opinion. Moving on. Let's talk about the paramedics in Alberta and the emergency services. Do you have any strong opinions that you'd like to vent about that? <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I have to put my little disclaimer up front here uh, and, and make it absolutely clear that I'm speaking only for myself uh, and I'm not 
going to provide any sort of proprietary information and I don't claim to be speaking for my employer or any other organization because um, now I'm safe to, to speak and if I don't say that then things get really squirrely really quick. Um, no, I think that, you know, that I think it's, it's so broken. <laughs> I mean, we saw, here's the metaphor that I've been using for years, literally years. Um, our healthcare system in this province is broken, period, full stop. It, it gets broken more and more by stupid decisions, lab services, cough, um, but our healthcare system has not been maintained for the predictable outcomes that we're going to have in our society and based on our population. And, you know, I obviously have a huge bias being a paramedic, but in our, in, in the medical universe, there's this thing called an MCI, uh, which is short for mass casualty incident. And basically it's defined as when the needs of a situation overwhelm the available resources. Well, that's every day in Alberta healthcare right now. Um, and one of the problems that exists when you're dealing with an MCI is you have to start to prioritize things in ways that don't feel good. One of the ways that you have to prioritize things is making sure the most important part of any MCI management is what's called forward triage. So that's where you're figuring out, okay, just how screwed by the, the enormity of this thing are we? And that's the piece of an MCI that has to be protected the most because if you don't know how screwed you are, then you don't know how screwed you are. And I would comfortably argue that the forward triage for our healthcare system right now is EMS. Um, and it is only in, I just hate so much that I have to say this for the record. Um, Danielle Smith is the first political leader in my memory that has done anything to try to protect the forward triage part. Now, anecdotally, I've seen plenty of posts on social media, um, so that I'm not referring to my own personal experience, I'll say that, but I've seen plenty of posts on social media where the, the, the rules, the edicts that she and her um, chief administrator put into place are already falling apart. I mean, when she said that no ambulance was going to have to wait more than 45 minutes before they were able to get back on the street. And based on the reporting that I've seen in mainstream media, as well as the posts that I've seen on social media, that has already fallen apart. And it's fallen apart because the election is over and there's a lack of will again. And the hospitals are, because they're overwhelmed as well, saying, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. And until somebody comes back and says, yes, you are then we're gonna get right back to the same situation. But at the end of the day, the bottom line is, even with that piece addressed, and it's a critically important piece because hallway weights are not only incredibly demoralizing for paramedics, but they, they cause a lack of resources available on the street. We're still, you take a look at the number of ambulances that exist across the province, and we're at maybe half of what we should be. And so until, and I would extend that to the entire healthcare system. You take a look at the number of ER beds that are available, we're at maybe half of what we should be. You take a look at the, the number of long-term care spaces that are available, we're at maybe half of what we should be. And it's because we've created this problem over decades. And it sucks, don't get me wrong, but again, 
in any MCI, the most important part is forward triage. You take a look at the, the contracts that are being given to paramedics across the country right now. I know people who are leaving to go work in other provinces because they can make like 25% more than what they're making in Alberta. And it's inconceivable to me that Alberta as a province is leaving so much money on the table in ways that we don't have to. And we're not doing everything that we can to incentivize workers not only to stay here in the healthcare system, but to come here for the healthcare system. Because if I'm a paramedic coming from Australia, do I want to go to Alberta where everything's on fire and the, the paramedics get paid 20% less than other provinces? Or do I maybe want to go work in one of those other provinces where the paramedics make more? Gee, let me think about this one for a whole minute. Um, it's, do, you think this, do you think this has been a deliberate attempt to reduce the quality of our healthcare system so that we'll seek uh, for-profit healthcare? No, I think it's incompetence. It's just sheer incompetence. Yeah, because, because we, do look, we do look at the need for nurses. So nurses are now making uh, huge amounts of money in overtime instead of providing straight time for double the number of nurses. You know, And this, yeah, I, is, this is the problem that seems everywhere. You take a look at what the EMS landscape was prior to 2009, I want to say, um, when AHS took over all ground ambulance operations. You're talking about ambulance services that were run sometimes by private companies, sometimes by municipalities. That's how it was done. It was a functionally private system uh, prior to... And it still is like, unless you have benefits that cover it, you pay for an ambulance ride. Like that's, that's just the reality. So, um, it was a, a private system. It was moved to public and then left alone. There was no accounting for population growth. There was no accounting for aging workforce. There was no accounting for any of that. It was just like, well, I'll take it over and keep it the same. Um, now in some areas it has been beneficial because there are some ambulance, some areas of the province that had ambulance services that weren't standardized. And so if you got an ambulance in Calgary, you were getting one of the absolute best ambulance services that existed in the world. And that's not hyperbole. Um, that's, that's reality. Whereas if you go to somewhere in like rural Alberta, cross your fingers and rub two sticks together because God knows what's showing up to your door today. Um, so in, in some of those more remote communities, they've definitely seen an increase in the standard of care, but everything is stagnated uh, and including the workforce. And so I don't think that it's, it's, it's just incompetent. <laughs> okay, so can this be fixed with competent management or do we have to inject a whole lot of money into the system to fix it now that it's so yeah. broken? You give me all these questions where I can just say yes. Yeah. So, so is it is it time for a PST in Alberta? Would people choke on that? If you said we need a PST to fix our healthcare system, to fix our ambulance service, to fix the homeless population, to fix affordable housing, would Albertans accept the PST or are they just genetically programmed to reject it? Or is the money there, is it available from other sources? I would argue the money is available from other sources. Um, 
I would also argue we absolutely need a PST. Um, I would also argue that Albertans won't accept it without one hell of a sales pitch. And I don't know what that sales pitch looks like. Um, for the same reason that the NDP lost an election on a corporate sales tax, anybody who campaigns on a provincial sales tax is going to lose. Um, so I don't, but that doesn't change the fact that it's an economic reality. I mean, we, we, we've been very fortunate for the last little while with the, the oil prices, but Alberta is made or broken on oil prices. Right now we're doing okay. We won't be forever. So the question that needs to be asked and explained in a competent manner is, okay, so we're doing good with the oil prices right now, but eventually those oil prices are, are going to change. Eventually the way that the market is accessed in Alberta is going to change. Eventually the amount of oil that comes out of Alberta is going to change. How, how fucked would you like to be when that happens? Um, because you can either be a little bit with a PST or you can never see a doctor again. What would you like to do? Um, because those are the stakes. Uh, well, without, oil, if, without oil, we become Detroit. Yes, 100%. You know? And I think a PST adds a lot of stability to the province. But again, there's the NIMBY philosophy with PST, not in my backyard. You know, don't don't charge me a PST, charge everybody else. I looked at this gas tax that the uh, UCP took off so that gas prices would be more reasonable. And that strikes me as the sort of reasoning that goes goes against a PST. You know, we want to make ourselves popular. We don't want to do the hard, make the hard decisions and make society better. You know, we're just going to go for short-term relief and make everybody happy today. And the failures of our future are somebody else's to deal with. And we're, but we're it's, starting it's, to see the failures of the future now with the ambulance service and, and the healthcare system. And I would argue it's not a, um, you know, if you're on a hike and you're starting to get tired, things are feeling heavy. Do you go, oh, you know what? I'm carrying too much weight. I'm going to lop off a hand that'll make the journey easier because the reality is, is that as much as, you know, there's, there's a slight like 13 cents, it's not even, it's like 10 cents decrease at the pump, which you work out. If you've got a hundred gallon tank, hundred liter tank, 10 cents is $10. That's the difference. So we're not talking about big numbers at the tank for people. Um, but what we are talking about is a roughly billion dollar hole in revenue. So, yay, I guess. You're saving yourself a couple bucks, literally, at the pump. And you're blowing a billion dollar hole in revenue, which means that's a billion dollars that can't be put towards education, that can't be put towards healthcare, that can't be put towards infrastructure, that can't be put towards projects that would diversify the economy further and allow for better protections economically, not just socially. Um, yeah. So like, yay, we won, I guess. Yeah, it's not really yay, it's yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a foolish yay. 
you know. It's it's bread and circuses. It's popular policy to distract from the otherwise present reality. Yeah. Uh, your family were farmers. Have they been farmers for multi-generations in Alberta or did they come from other parts of the world? Did they come from Ontario? Were they the original settlers of this province? Not this province. <laughs> Uh, my family have been in Canada, uh, on my mom's side, I think it's three or four generations on my dad's side. It's probably closer to 20 or 30. Um, my family goes all the way back to the 1600s in Newfoundland. Um, and there's, there's a whole fascinating story about a pirate and a princess in there, but it's for another day. Um, but, but well, no, I want to hear that on the pirate and the princess. That sounds really entertaining. <laughs> the, 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 the family legend is that there was, uh, years ago, there was a, a pirate named Gilbert. He was a privateer. So he was like a pirate in service of the crown. Um, and he intercepted a Dutch raiding vessel that had, done a, a raid on a chunk of Ireland. And one of the things that this Dutch raiding vessel had, had stolen was this Irish princess. And so Gilbert rescued the Irish princess, given, given the times, you know, the 1600s, that's probably somewhat open to interpretation. But when he decided to, to leave the, the privateering life, he, he, he and his wife, uh, came to Newfoundland um, and started as as fisher people, uh, and so my family's been on my dad's side. My family's been in Canada for centuries, uh, and so we've done the the farming stuff. We've done the fishing stuff. We've done the oil and gas stuff. Um, so it's that's yeah. <laughs> oh, there you go. Now that that's a really interesting story. Thank you for sharing that with me. So, yeah. So Prince Nate from now on. Oh my God. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we won't give you any royal degrees of any sort then. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. My family was bar settlers. So they, okay. they showed, they showed up to in Lloyd minister to nothing. They were promised everything and delivered nothing. They, originally it was supposed to be Barstown. If that gives you any idea how badly they were failed and then it became Lloyd minister and uh, my family actually hosted uh, minister Lloyd for the first winter that he was here so yeah I think every Albertan has a lot of history to share we've got a lot of stake and we've got a lot of investment in this province we have to be wiser and take the time to understand what's going on to see the bigger issues to see the causes of the pressure that we feel pushing down on us I think a lot of people are are feeling the weight of the world pushing down, but they're unfortunately turning to emotional reasoning and blaming people that really aren't a cause. You know, they're blaming scapegoats. I hate Trudeau. Yep. Why? Because, you know, and and not knowing why is <clears throat> it's not failing society, but it's failing yourself more than anything else. You know, if you don't know why you have an opinion, then then how much do you really care about yourself? Uh, do you have any opinions on that or did I just make a little speech? No, I like the speech. I just, I don't know this. I, I, I think you're right. I think it's, it's like, it takes energy to be pissed off. And there's things in this world that, that are absolutely worth being pissed off about. But 
I don't know why anybody would want to expend energy in being pissed off over something that isn't real. Uh, yeah. Vaccines, vaccines, for example. Yeah, like vaccines or the WAF or 15 minute cities. Like you see people who get so invested in these things that don't exist uh, in the way that they think they do. And they invest all kinds of energy into uh, being upset about it and making other people upset about it when it's not grounded in reality at all. And it's just like, you know, if you took like a fraction of that energy and got pissed off about any of the things that are actually happening, I feel like the world would probably be a better place. But the... the, the it's, it's pretty sad to go chasing a conspiracy with all your energy when there's so many things that are true and happening right in front of you, you know, that you should be focused on. But the conspiratorial mind likes to see things that nobody else can, I guess. Maybe I the think obvious... it's also like, there's no end point. You're under attack. The, the WAF are coming and they're going to make you eat bugs or whatever. Um, and you can get angry about that because I guess maybe you don't, like bugs some people do um but there's no end point so you get to be angry forever you get to have this as your new hobby and nothing's ever going to change nothing's ever going to be different because it doesn't exist but you can feel like you're accomplishing something and you're never going to lose it and i think we've seen that coming out of covid where there are a lot of people who brought in those conspiracy theories into, into COVID. Oh, it's the WEF, it's the, the, the globalists and the, the technology and the 5G and the, and the, and the, and the, and the. And most of those conspiracy theories had very little, if nothing, to do with COVID, but they were woven into it because that's what these people had decided what their thing was gonna be. And those things have continued. The same people who were upset about the WEF before COVID are still upset about the WAF. They made it part of the COVID narrative for a while there, but it, it's, it's, it's a hobby. Yeah. Well, I think Bill C-18 has now passed and has taken uh, the news off of Facebook. Uh, corporate news is now being removed. I think this is a very bad thing because now all you have on Facebook is going to be BS. And I think well, a lot of people rely on Facebook. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing that the corporate news got taken from Facebook? I think that's a complicated question. The way that I'll answer that is, I mean, first of all, I think it's important. To, I mean, we were talking about how corporations will act in their best interests. So let's be clear. That bill didn't remove the news from Facebook. It didn't remove the news from Google. It said to those organizations, hey, if you want to make advertising money off of using Canadian produced news and Canadian produced content, you should maybe pay for some of that content, which isn't an unrealist, un, unreasonable stance as far as I'm concerned. Now, what those corporations said was, you know what, we're big enough. We're going to we're going to kind of screw with you a little bit here. We're going to take that news away and we're going to blame you. We're going to say that it's, it's so unfair to make Facebook, who makes billions and billions of dollars in gross profit every year, it's so unfair to try to make us put 
a small fraction of that profit back into the the news organizations that are quite frankly many of which are withering and dying right now and which are essential for any sort of healthy democracy it's it's unreasonable to allow those social media platforms to have access to that content without paying for it in some degree that's the argument um and so the the, the counter argument that I'm, I'm fascinated that I haven't seen anybody put forward yet is, so I guess you don't want legitimacy then. I guess you just want it to be Uncle Ray who's talking about the, the WEF coming for you with, I don't know, chimpanzee semen or something. Um, it's, 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 that's, that's the content that you want to put in front of, of, of people now. You don't want to have any kind of legitimate content. Good to know. Thanks for telling everybody that you are purely a source of entertainment and you have no desire to present accurate, trustable information. Thank you so much, Facebook, for finally saying the quiet part out loud. Nobody said that, and I don't know why, because that's exactly what's happening. Do you think the repeal of the fairness doctrine was what started uh, news media's decline? Are you familiar with fairness doctrine at all? Or? Uh, yes, but I'm going to ask you to explain it for the audience, because that's what a good host does. Asked that, uh, it granted the broadcasters uh, free access to the airwaves, provided that they create a news program to inform the public. Uh, for free. Do you think uh, news, when it became for profit, it lost a lot of its uh, integrity? And the loss of that integrity has caused its decline? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it's one all of the Reagan's fault, basically. Everything that's bad yeah. happens goes right back to Reagan. So that's going to upset a lot of people. <laughs> I think one of the things that's important to realize, and this is one of the reasons why organizations like the CRTC are responsible for licensing, um, you know, historically radio frequencies, television frequencies, television channels, is because that space belongs to the public. That space, those airwaves, that that bandwidth belongs to the public, and corporations this is one of the reasons why I, I remain a supporter of the CBC not necessarily all of the things that they do but I remain a supporter of the idea of the CBC is if you do not have organizations that are willing to respect that space and respect that service um, and respect the fact that they are operating because of the grace of the people, um, then it becomes about something else entirely. Uh, and I think that that's a profoundly dangerous place and a profoundly dangerous road to go down because now information, you know, when, when, when we're talking in the, in the, the nascent days of, of radio and television, the requirement was you will provide quality information to the population. You'll do it for free for one hour a day. Um, the other 23 hours, do what you want. 
um, but for, for this one hour, it is your responsibility to make sure that the, using this incredibly powerful medium that the population, the citizens are being educated. And one of the things that I think that we've seen is a move away from the, what, what's going to educate people effectively, what's going to inform people effectively to what's going to sell Budweiser or what's going to sell cars or, 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 or. And it becomes the, the programming instead of the, the programming being in service to the people, the programming then becomes in service to the advertisers. And as soon as you make that shift, then the advertisers now get to dictate the type of programming that happens. And that's a really dangerous place because for the same reason that I said corporations are being responsible to the things they're being responsible for, if you give corporations influence over the, the news programming, over the, the journalism, if they start to be able to influence that because of advertising dollars or withholding advertising dollars, then they're going to make sure that the type of programming isn't harmful to them. And there are some corporations. Jay, do you feel that the lack of responsibility that the press uh, has and the lack of responsibility that uh, many of our establishments have, the weight of that responsibility falls on the podcaster? Are you, are you making up for that deficit? Are you trying your best to make up for that deficit? So did you say podcaster? As a podcaster, do you think you're trying to make up for the deficit that, uh, say, the press has and the government has? Is it your mission to try to bring justice and fairness back? Is that why you're doing what you're doing? Is it, is it the podcasters that people should really be looking to in the future? No. I would say no, uh, they shouldn't be. And I say that for a couple of, couple of different reasons. So like, we're a fairly unique entity to my knowledge in that we do commentary, we do satire, we do humor, um, but we try to do it using well-sourced information. So and I so, perhaps should have said the question should have been, as as a, a podcaster as yourself you know is that I mean, where, okay. is that are you seeking to bring justice for the lack of uh, accuracy in the press and the lack of uh responsive responsible government is that your major motivation for doing what you're doing is that your moral and ethical responsibility to society that has really created your need to do this podcast I mean, that sounds pretty grandiose, man. Uh, well, of course it does. But, you know, like, like let's, let's just take you as an auditor, for example, or, or orator, sorry. You know, you're quite gifted as an orator. You can speak well and you, you don't go hum and haw and all this stuff. So you're a good representative for the population. And add a morality and ethics into that. And you do a very good job. You perform a very good service for others. Now, are you doing this out of a sense of personal responsibility? Is it just sheer enjoyment? Do you feel like you're bringing fairness back to society? Is sense of justice your motivation? Here's, here's what I'll, I'll 
I'll answer that with. Um, after, saying th- you're, after saying you're a gifted, uh, gifted orator, I sort of stopped you for a second, didn't I? <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of different motivations for me, and I have to be clear, I'm speaking for myself, not for anyone else who's involved in the show at this point. Um, I think for me, there is a, a element of, of uh, civic responsibility for sure. I think that there are, there's an important need to be able to demonstrate that you can have conversations about things without being horrible. Um, I think one of the big places that we fall down in conversation all too often is we default to, well, here's my position. And then you say, here's my position. And I go, well, you're the fucking worst. Uh, And that's how the conversation goes. And I don't think that that's healthy. I don't think that it's conducive to a dialogue. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we decided that we do the, the open mics at the end of every show and why until you say something hateful, uh, you're allowed to say whatever it is that you want to say, or you're allowed to ask whatever questions it is that you want to ask, because having that dialogue and making space for that dialogue is critically important. But I think another big part of it for me is it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, I, yes, there's a huge part of it that is, is based around creating dialogue and trying to get people more engaged. But I also get to play with puppets and make a lot of jokes and I get to be irreverent. And so I get to continue doing the, the punk rock thing of don't, don't be a a fucking liar like that, please. Um, and if you do, I'm going to call you out. I get to do that, uh, using whatever means necessary, which is, just a boatload of fun. I mean, the I love it. It is wildly entertaining to me that the the same show that uses puppets. I have my not Kenny puppet just to the side of me over here. Uh, the same show that uses puppets and has done fake press conferences on the steps of the legislature using puppets um, also is able to get the premier of the province to unblock everybody on Twitter. Like that's just wildly, wildly entertaining to me. And I think in, in, in part it's reflective of, of where we are uh, as a society because it took the show that uses puppets um, to get the premier to unblock the province of Alberta. Like that to me, that is just like so wild. Uh, and I, I wish, I wish, and I do believe for the record, I do believe that if there were journalists that were appropriately funded, I, if, if those institutions hadn't been eroded from the inside, I don't think it would require the kind of satire and humor that, that we try to bring to the table. Um, but I think that there's also, uh, it's, it's so multifaceted. It's really hard to boil down to one thing. I think that there's also, like, there's, there's for sure an entertainment piece. And when we do a bit, when we do jokes that land, um, that's awesome. Like, our True North sketch that we did where I walked by the post office, like, eight times, that was so much fun to do. And to see people respond well to that and know that the joke landed, the joke worked, and it made its point because... That's so much of what we try to do is satire. 
And satire isn't just fart jokes. You know, satire is, here's this messed up situation. How can we make fun of it and make jokes in a way that make understanding that it's messed up accessible? And it's a, it's a, it's, it's got a process and there's a, there's, there's a, there's an, you know, we do a lot of off the cuff stuff, but there, there's stuff that we do that is very deliberative. Um, and so there's, there's that as well. I think that there's, I think that the arts are so important in addressing times of instability. Um, and I look at how the creatives respond when batshit crazy stuff happens. And it's so inspirational to me. And there's a part of me that just wants to be like running alongside of that and going, I want to be a part of that too. Um, so it's, 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 I don't think it's anything. Perhaps the artist, you know, as an advocate, I run into a lot of people who have a lot of desire and a lot of will to make the world a better place, but they don't know how to execute that and to actually make it happen. And perhaps it's, perhaps it's the artist that uh, helps people who have the desire to make the world better, that actually helps them execute it. Like uh, you have many guests on that have a will to make the world a better place, but through your voice, you're able to actually make the change for them. So you, you transition their will into actual action. So that's, that's a great thing in my mind. So do you see yourself in the same role or did you ever think about that before? I don't, I don't think about it that way, honestly. Like I, I take a look at the, the guests that, that we've had over the years on the show with just a couple of small exceptions. And it is, it has been in so many ways. And you, by the way, would be included on this list, sir. Every single interaction that I have with the guest on the show, I get to learn something. I get to do it for free. I get, to, I get to learn something. I get to be exposed to a different perspective. Um, that is, to me, such a gift. And to be able to share those interactions with people and um, have hopefully, you know, like, I'll, I'll use you as an example. When I've had conversations with you about issues affecting the disabled community, there are plenty of times where I've had these little light bulb moments where like, oh, okay, that's what's going on. Or, oh, okay, that's why that's important. And to be able to share those in the, in the hopes, and, and, you know, sometimes I know that there, we get messages, um, have other people share in those light bulb moments and go, oh, that's why this is important. That to me is, is just a tremendous gift. I mean, I have, a, I, I have a, a platform where I'm able to, on the podcast, I'm able to make all of my dumb jokes and sometimes they land really well, uh, sometimes they don't. <laughs> but in, this, in the same space, like with the social media for the show, um, we've certainly made mistakes in the past where we haven't executed on the, the points that we're trying to make or the jokes that we're trying to make. But at the same time, I get to be part of writing wildly sarcastic and wildly acerbic things that make the point by using humor. And I think if there was an ethos of the, the show, I think it's to make targets of the 
people who are in power who are being dicks and say, you know what, everybody thinks, like there's this misconception, I think, that, that if somebody's in a position of power, well, you just can't call them out because um, they'll, they'll, they'll blackball you. I mean, we're currently we're blackballed by the NDP. Um, I've, I've been told that by a number of people. Um, I don't care because I can just make a, I can just make a puppet. So whatever. Um, and B the, the other part of that is if there's been this dynamic for years and years and years, and it's gotten more and more so, and it really came to, to be very clear during the UCP leadership race, especially with Smith, you know, the, the, the currency that a lot of politicians and a lot of po people who are in power trade in is access. And, okay, well, if, I mean, there's a lot of, I've said it before, I don't think we'll ever have Smith on the show. I don't know that I would ever want to have Smith on the show because it would be just such an exercise in, please stop lying, please stop lying, please stop lying, that's not true, please stop lying, please stop lying, that it, yeah. it would get to be boring. Uh, it wouldn't be a, a, a genuine conversation. And that's, like I said, those genuine conversations are so much what I, of what I enjoy about doing the show. Um, there's, there's, if I can't talk to Rachel Notley, there's a boatload of other very, very smart, genuine, sincere people that I can find to talk to. I'll be fine. Thanks. And, you know, it's, it's, and I think that, We are not beholden to these people. They are beholden to us. You said a very interesting thing there because uh, as a disability advocate and representing the disabled community, we are beholden. There's always a boot over us. That's, that's the sensation that, that we feel. Often when we try to contact a minister, we hear back from an age supervisor. We don't hear from the minister. It's, and it's, whether it's intentional or not, it's a form of intimidation. And uh, because we're so humble and so meek, we don't, we can't be militant. We can't be demanding. Perhaps that's why the, the reason that I try to be graceful and humble is because I know there's a guillotine hanging over our head. But anyway, back to your answer. It was very, very graceful and very humble, but you do make a difference in the world. So we'll just leave it there. Uh, a couple more comments I'd like to make and followed by one question. Uh, libertarians are like driving on a freeway without lines, speed limits, mufflers, or direction of traffic. You know, this is, this is what order does. You know, it, it gives you lines on the freeway and it gives you a speed limit. So these are all good things. One of the last questions I have for you is what gave you, you, what gave you your gift of gab? How come you speak so well? Where did that come from? Um, is it sitting around the dinner room table with your grandfathers? Is it? It's a lot of different places. Like I think that there's um, there's a lot of different pieces. I I, I would argue that that growing up, if you weren't able to present your ideas. Um, it, it didn't go super well. Like my, my parents took the tact of, uh, here's what the rules are until you can argue otherwise. And so me being, 
something of a contrarian, you know, one of my hobbies was like, okay, so what are the arguments that I need to make to change the rules? I now have a kid who does that to me, so, you know, uh, the universe finds balance. But um, I think another part of it, I was bullied horribly as a child. Uh, and so being able to use words became my uh way around that being able to actually being able to use satire became my way to, to to diffuse some of that but i also like i i got into um the the music scene the punk music scene when i was 18 and part of being in that scene with the people that i was in is because you're talking about, uh, you know, it, it was it was political for sure because it's punk. Um, so you start having all of these conversations with really smart people, people way smarter than me. And if you're not able to explain your ideas or explain uh, why it is that you feel the way that you feel, you get taken out for a walk real quick. But also, I learned very on in 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 playing live shows with the various bands you, you play a song and then it, you know you can get away to some degree with playing a song and then playing another song and playing another song and playing another song and for quite a while that's how I did it because I didn't want to have to be like and now I'll speak to you room of people and then I started my my bandmates were like you have to do some banter like this is dumb like you're the front man use some words without us doing stuff. And so I went through a very uncomfortable period of speaking in front of large groups of people who who were more than happy to uh, hoist you by your own batard if need be. Um, so there was a lot of hard hard lessons in speaking in in that regard. So I think that there's, you know, it's it's it has been a, a, a grinding at a very rough edge for a very long time. <laughs> you mentioned you mentioned you were bullied when you were young. I was I was the oh, same. Yeah. I, I was moved into a neighborhood where all the kids were older than I was. Do you think bullying at a young age leads to a person that uh, that has profound empathy and a sense of justice and is really, really concerned with fairness and the fair treatment of others? Or does it just I, usually lead to the uh, a, a sniper in a bell tower or something like that? I mean, or it can go. I, I was going to say it can go both ways. I think that you know, there when you experience any form of um, oppression, uh, and I mean, like I am not when I say when I say oppression, I'm speaking in the the terms of a power dynamic. I'm not like, hey, I was I was the 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 white kid in school. I was so oppressed. I mean, there were things that I didn't have to deal with that other people absolutely did. So I just want to define my terms carefully there. But I think that anybody who's, who's been on the receiving end of a um, unequal power dynamic where they were unfairly targeted, that can translate into appreciation for how that feels, that can translate into, into empathy. Um, if you survive it. And I think that's a really important, like I'm in no way advocating, you know what the world needs to make people better? Let's just beat the shit out of everyone and see who bubbles to the top. Like that's, that's, that's not the, 
not not my recommendation uh, because it, it also leads to all kinds of different forms of tragedy. Um, and there are things that I have had to overcome that were a direct result of the bullying uh, that were were not easy. I think that... Well, we can't say that you bubbled to the top. We can't? We can't say you bubbled to the top. I, th I don't think we should. <laughs> you said beat the shit out of everybody and see who bubbles to the top. I'm just saying you bubbled to the top. Last, well, last question for you. Who's your hero? Mine is Terry Fox, for example. I, you know, I've, I've had heroes in my life um, and I've made the mistake of meeting them. I would recommend against that. I mean, they say don't meet your heroes for really, really good reasons. I think that if I was to, to pick one, um, I would have to go with Kurt Vonnegut. A, because he's dead, so yay, that's safe. Um, but B, also because he was uh, a humanist, he was kind, he was pragmatic, he was a profound cynic, uh, and I think that all of those things can exist in the same space. I think sometimes it's an important thing that they exist in the same space, but he was always, uh, you know, like one of the big phrases that he repeated in more than a couple of books was, God damn it, kids, you gotta be kind. Um, and I, I take a look at, at, at that philosophy and I, I, he was such a perfectly flawed person from what I know of him. Um, and he maintained a, a kindness and a generosity, but he was also sharp as like, there's there's interviews and there's there's moments where you can see that the Kurt Vonnegut has, de has decided he will no longer suffer this particular fool, and it is just a joy to watch him, without mercy but without cruelty, um, yeah. put somebody in their place. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a kind of visceration of sorts. But a necessary and carefully. Uh, measured one um, so you know I I I, I, I think that, that that's a, a big he would be top of the list I mean John Stewart is another one that I go to all the time um, because he's another individual Carlin. what's yeah Carlin for sure um, Bill Hicks uh, I mean not for the faint of heart Bill um, by any stretch of the imagination. He was definitely a product of his times uh, in the same way that Lenny Bruce was a product of his times. Yeah. But that willingness to speak truth to power, damn the consequences, um, and to make fun of it. Uh, Who's going to step forward today and be that person? Stephen Fry or somebody like this? Or John Cleese? Or who is our, who is our future satirist? that's really gonna make the biggest difference? Or, or who can you see as being like people that you admire the most who exist today? I think that um, I, John Stewart would be at the top of the list. Yeah. Uh, okay. I would argue uh, John Oliver is another one. Um, there's a, a Lisa on the, the TikTok machines. Um, she, every time she puts something up, I'm just like, 
damn, that's so good. Um, there's, because uh, I had to pick, I had to find somebody who was Canadian and relevant to this conversation. Um, I think that there's, 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 see, the thing of it is, you never know until they're there. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Like, that's true, yeah. there's, there's so many smart, funny people that I could think of, which is why I kind of just like, la, 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 off for a second there. There's, there's so many smart and funny people that I can think of that have the potential to occupy that space. Um, but, you know, like, I, I, one of the best compliments that I've, I've ever been given was somebody told me that Jon Stewart's doing the breakdown with a budget. Now, like the current incarnation of what he's doing, uh, he's got, he's got budget and access, and I mean, I I thought that was remarkably kind because John Stewart is way funnier than I'll ever be, um, but you know people like that, uh, I think there will always be people who occupy that space. And I don't want to be the guy who tries to prognosticate on who's going to be the next great um, because they're always a surprise. I mean, there's, there's so many people who I find, I'll put it this way, I find more people inspirational than I find people uninspirational. I think that the, just about every person that you meet, if you take the time to get to know them for a sec, you can find something about them that goes, oh man, I wish I was doing that, or oh, I wish I could do it that way. Um, and I think that, that the biggest thing that I love is that I'm at a place in life now where I think so many people look at other people executing something well, and they go, oh, I'm not that, I'm less, therefore I'm going to try to denigrate them in some way. Um, whereas I, it's, it's like watching somebody do, stick their head in a, you know, in a lion's mouth kind of thing. You know, you watch somebody do that and you go, man, I could never do that, but that's friggin' awesome. Um, and I think that, that that's what more people need to do is just be okay with going like, Hey, that person's really good at doing like, we don't TikTok. I don't TikTok. I would be a goddamn disaster on TikTok because it's just not... I, I take too long. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're pretty quick-witted. Now, Laz, I'm going to let you off the hook here. You've given me a wonderful interview today, and you've been an excellent guest. I'm going to let <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to let you sum up uh, our conversation with whatever you want to talk about. Just just freewheel about anything you wish to talk about. I don't even know. Um, I think that, that, you know, I'm going to go back to what I was talking about, about earlier and, and the way that, that I end the shows. Um, I, I use the tagline, keep the conversation going. And I use that tagline because having conversations, again, not just shouting down each other, but having conversations is not only so important because it's the only way that anything's ever going to move forward 
in a meaningful way. Um, but it's just so rewarding. And I think that, that it's so important that people be willing to open up themselves to conversations and say, hey, would you be willing to chat for an hour? And you don't have to do it on a podcast. I mean, I do it sometimes on a podcast, but there's lots of times throughout my week where I'll be like, tell me, tell me, tell me a story. What's your deal? What's, what's it all about for you? Um, and it brings, the more that we can understand about each other, the greater empathy and the greater amount of compassion we're able to demonstrate towards each other. And I think that, that, instead of having, I mean, there's certain people who absolutely deserve a, a combative approach. Um, when I had John Carpe on the show, that was um, really the only time I can think of where I went into a conversation with a particular moment in time defined in my head that I was going to get to because I wanted to see what he did when I put him in a box. Um, and he did, he responded, the, the, oh, I gotta go. Like, that's one of my favorite moments that I've, I've ever had on the show. But, you know, that was, that was a one-off. Um, but I think that if you have conversations from a place of genuine curiosity, uh, that is so important uh, because that's the only way that you're going to learn anything. Um, so, you know, that's, that's, that's why... I end the show every every episode with keep the conversation going because yeah. it's as soon as you get to a place where you don't want to talk with anyone, you don't want to learn anything new, you are robbing yourself uh, predominantly. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I absolutely, I just love the fact. It's so, it's so ridiculous to me, but I absolutely love the fact that in, in the course of doing the show, I've been able to meet people like you, um, who your diplomacy and, and kindness and gentleness of spirit is so amazing to watch. And I think it's absolutely a privilege and funny and all of the things that you were like, hey, how about, how about, how about I interview you? I thought that was just like the coolest thing in for so many different reasons, none of which include uh, any sort of, of, yeah, I should be interviewed. <laughs> yeah, it, it like, is important to have a, a conversation that's more like the waltz than a boxing match, you know, to have yeah. grace in your conversation, to accept words as they're intended and not how you interpret them. But I, I want to say one last thing here. You're the guest you're not allowed to give me the last compliment. So I thank you for doing, I thank you for doing uh, what you're doing. And I think you're doing a remarkable job. You're incredibly well-spoken and you're really serving this province well. And if you're getting a kick out of it at the same time, that's great to hear. So I'd like to thank you, Nate, for being on Don's breakdown today. And uh, I very much enjoyed having you as a guest. Thank you so much. You got to say the line now. Uh, uh, what is the line again? Oh, keep the conversation going. Is that the one you wanted me to get or was it Shazam? <laughs> <laughs>
I didn't know if you were referring to my own personal line or your personal line or if I was going to take it's, over your show, do I have my do I have to have my own meme at the end? My own, meme, my own meme is be kind. Just be kind and keep the conversation going. Awesome. Thank thank you so much, Don. You take care too, sir. I really enjoyed this. I'm glad you did. Okay. I did as well. Thank you. And that's it for another episode of The Breakdown. As always, if you appreciate the kind of content that we're trying to produce here, we would love nothing more than if you thought about signing up to be one of our Patreon sponsors at www.patreon.com slash thebreakdownab, where for just the price of a fancy cup of coffee a month, you can help us continue to produce this kind of content. Whether you're listening to the audio version of the podcast, in which case, maybe leave a, a, a review and a rating, or whether you're watching it on one of our streaming platforms, we wanna say a big thank you to everybody who is part of The Breakdown's audience. And as always, take care of each other and keep the conversation going. <laughs>